0: prophet TV Joshua, I honor what he brought to the body of Christ, I honor his teachings, and I honor the legacy that he left on this earth. And by doing so, you are seeing me partake of that same grace. You will be filled with the Holy
1: Spirit.
0: I'm going to interpret this Bible into a prayer language i believe that the word of god is alive and active yes.
1: do we believe this yes
0: do we believe that his word contains power yes do you believe that a man or woman a vessel of god that contains the presence of power of the holy spirit when they write something like this that even the writing on the board contains the anointing of the word yes.
1: the clips i played for you were taken from a video shared by daniel adams in a meeting he conducted while he was teaching others about the power of anointing and a prayer language otherwise known as speaking in tongues. He modeled this teaching after TB Joshua, a professing prophet and pastor who ministered in Nigeria until his death in 2021. During this gathering that Daniel Adams conducted in doing this practice, there were physical manifestations, people falling down, shaking, speaking in tongues, and other manifestations as they merely touched the board with their fingertips. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. In some of the clips that Daniel Adams showed regarding T.B. Joshua doing this very practice on a chalkboard years ago, a man approached the chalkboard after he had written in a in an alleged private prayer language, touching the board, falling over, and then began to uh, interpret what T.B. Joshua was saying. T.B. Joshua noted that this was the same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost, what the people just witnessed between him and this gentleman And also, that unrighteousness went out of this man, and righteousness came in, and he spoke in tongues. Sometimes, I'm honestly still shocked at some of the things I witness on these videos, even though I saw quite a bit in the years I was part of the hyper-charismatic New Apostolic Reformation movement. Today we're going to discuss this topic and the events in this video as there are those who may refer to Paul's handkerchiefs as a proof text to justify such practices, and we will also consider the danger of such practices. An in-depth discussion concerning tongues and scripture is beyond the scope of this podcast. However, we will look at what the father of the Pentecostal movement, Charles Fox Parham, believed about tongues, and I will share some of the things I was taught concerning speaking in tongues and we will consider some thoughts worth pondering about tongues when reading scripture. Hi there, and welcome to the Six Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Six Scribe. For those who may not know, I attended a quote Bible college at the church I attended years ago, earning what was alleged to be a doctorate in theology. And for this particular podcast, I went digging through my old notes I had from a class that I took years ago and I also taught several years after I graduated called The Language of the Spirit. Here are some highlights from those notes, which were honestly difficult for me to read and to revisit because of the error laced throughout the notes. I had written down that the spirit is not in charge. Satan got man's permission to dominate. And Jesus came in man's form to reclaim dominion for man. And the body has permission to be on earth, and spirits cannot operate without an object or living thing. These are the things I was taught. And again, this is about the language of the spirit. So the notes did talk about God being a triune God, but there were these things that were mentioned about the Holy Spirit. These notes did talk about God being a triune being and when it got to the Holy Spirit, it was said that he is responsible to create the words of God and the words of believers who live and speak by faith and that we give permission with our mouths and that he is limited in this dispensation because God instituted a legal contract which states man will have dominion in the earth that he is limited to his operation in the earth based upon man's level of obedience. The scripture reference for this, by the way, was Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. I want to read that to you because it has nothing to do with what was just stated on this page. Titus 3, verses 3 through 5 states, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared, He has saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I hope that you'll notice there that those verses have nothing to do with the statement in these notes that he is limited in this dispensation because of a legal contract which states that man will have dominion in the earth and that he has limited operation in the earth based upon man's level of obedience. Again, third person of the Trinity, God does whatever he wants to do. As I continued to read through these notes, there were things still that I noticed that were bothersome. I noticed in lesson three, understanding the methods of the Holy Spirit, the language of the Spirit, it talked about the different manifestations or the methods such as falling out or being slain in the Spirit, shaking, trembling, laughing as a fruit of joy, weeping or crying in the Spirit, and manifestations of the Holy Spirit in worship, they went on to talk about in lesson four about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, citing Matthew 3, 11, Luke 24, 49, and Acts 1, 5, and 8, and saying all of these scriptures outline the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a literal baptism or immersion in the Spirit that is deeper than the born-again experience. And again, they referenced in these notes that I had from a Bible college class years ago, and I use Bible college loosely, Titus 3, Chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. They continue to go on and talk about how the baptism the Holy Spirit is received. It could be through laying on of hands or not laying on of hands. In Lesson 5, the benefits of tongues was talked about focusing on Jude 20. That was a go-to passage that we taught many times, was taught to us, and we uh, continue to perpetuate about how that was praying in the Holy Spirit, even though Jude 20 says nothing about actually praying in tongues and then Lesson 7 was ca- talked about the diversity of tongues. Now, I was actually taught that there were four different types of tongues. There was tongues for personal edification, there was tongues for interpretation, tongues as groaning for intercession, and tongues as a sign to the unbeliever. And I think you're going to find that some of these, that that belief in and of itself with those four different types of tongues is going to fit in with Charles Fox Parham and, and some of the things that he um, claimed to to know and to understand about tongues in some of the literature that he wrote himself. I was taught that when you were praying in tongues, you are speaking mysteries, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 2, and that you're building yourself up, according to Jude 20. I was taught that faith is built through revelation, according to Romans 10, 17, the rhema word, by the way, which I've talked about before on other episodes. I've, I was taught that it will protect you from false doctrine, according to 1 John 2, 26 and 27, which I find ironic now. The more time you spend praying in tongues, I was taught, the stronger your ability to walk in the Spirit becomes. So I was taught all of these different elements, and there's a lot more to these notes. And again, there's some things, there's some truth laced in there. There's also some things in there that are highly questionable now when I look at them, that they don't match up with what Scripture is saying. And it seems like there's more reading into the text than actually extrapolating from what it means and taking clear passages to interpret unclear passages. And so looking at all this now, there's a lot of questions that come to the surface. And there are most certainly questions when I watch a video with Daniel Adams stating that the anointing, the same anointing that we believe is in the very Word of God that is logos and rhema by the way and i would just point out romans 10 17 the rhema word is the spoken word which is talking about the gospel proclaiming the gospel read romans 17 in context please when i look at all this now there's there's questions and then when i'm watching daniel adams talk about that the same anointing in the word of god is is in his writing the private prayer language on a board And then I see people manifesting in such a way that they're falling out, they're shaking, they're rolling, they're praying in tongues. Some are claiming deliverance that demons came out. This is beyond the pale. I mean, it's beyond the scope of what is even biblical. Now, I will say this. I'm going to tell on some of the things that that I was accustomed to in in this movement, because there were some wild stuff that happened or wild allegations that were made. And I share this so that you may know more about my own background as I talk about these things, both the notes and the things I'm getting ready to show you, because we can tend to shut down opposing thoughts from others because we assume they have never experienced such things as we have. And even if I had never experienced any of these things or can um, talk about how I heard these, these accounts being relayed when I was in these services, that does not change the fact that scripture is to be our standard and our foundation, not our experiences or our emotions which tends to happen quite a bit it can happen in any circumstance when you're talking about this particular movement experience and emotions are heightened to a a supreme standard and used as a barometer if you will so there were a couple of things that came to mind when I, when I thought about this. For one thing, we used to have um, napkins, cloth napkins at our church, and some of you may relate to this, but they would have cloth napkins that they kept, and they had specific anointing oil that they would put on them. And so if someone came, and they said that they were having a family member that was having physical ailments, or there was marital issues, or whatever was going on, that somebody would actually cut a, a portion of this cloth off, put anointing oil on it, and send them with that, telling them... And pray over it and tell them, you know, this is what happened with Paul, with his handkerchiefs, with his aprons. And so we can do this. And what you'll want to do is put this little portion of this handkerchief in your loved one's pillowcase. And, um, you know, it has the anointing in it and it will help them. It kind of sounds like witchcraft, (laughs) you know, and it sounds, it really sounds new age witchcraft type practices. So those are the things that would happen, and then there was a personal example that happened to me that I was given a square from from Oral Roberts' napkin that was given to Ryan and his wife when they had him pray over them, and they took a, a seed to him, like a gift to him, and so they wanted him to impart something to them or to pray over them, and they took a napkin. Well, I was given um, a square of this cloth that it was anointed to for um for my family to use at different times. So there was that and then there's this really strange story I'm going to tell you and it's it's bizarre but I'm going to tell you. So I remember years ago sitting in a service where a minister was relaying this account. This woman came to this minister and her son was battling with addiction. Well, what she had this minister do was she had him carry candy bars in his pockets. And so he carried these candy bars for weeks or months it was, it was some long extended period of time and he carried them whenever he ministered and her thought was and i guess he also agreed with this is that the anointing from his life from from God would transfer into the candy bars and they would they would impact her, this woman's son and so he gave the candy bars back to the woman and the story went that uh, the candy bars were given to her, to her son, and he was delivered of drug addiction, and it was all attributed to this man and his anointing on these candy bars. And so taking all this con- into consideration, what you just heard me read from those notes, Daniel Adams' videos, some of the the things I've shared with you about just examples that I can share, and you probably have your own examples, the video we heard and saw from Daniel Adams was was rather disturbing to me because of the implications and because of the practice being perpetuated it did not look it was there's nowhere in scripture that we're told to do this nowhere are we, is this modeled? This is not, we don't see this anywhere. However, the belief of spiritual energy being contained in objects is not uncommon, nor is it exclusive to practices found in areas of the charismatic movement. I talked to one of my friends who was involved in the New Age, a sister in Christ, uh, formerly involved in the New Age, and to her recollection, there was no practice like this of touching something and falling over and shaking. However, there are New Age beliefs that are common among religious and non-religious Americans. I found this article that dated back from October 1, 2018 from Pew Research, and they talked in this article about most American adults self-identify as Christians, but many Christians also hold what are sometimes characterized as New Age beliefs, including belief in reincarnation, astrology, psychics, and the presence of spiritual energy in physical objects like mountains or trees. And many Americans, they say in this article, who are religiously unaffiliated also have these beliefs. Overall, roughly 6 in 10 American adults accept at least one of these new age beliefs. Specifically, 4 in 10 believe in psychics and that spiritual energy can be found in physical objects, while somewhat smaller shares express belief in reincarnation and astrology. And the article went on to say, But New Age beliefs are not necessarily replacing belief in traditional forms of religious beliefs or practices. While 8 and 10 Christians say they believe in God as described in the Bible, 6 and 10 believe in one or more of the four New Age beliefs analyzed here, one of which was the belief that there is spiritual energy in objects. And honestly, I don't see any difference in saying something like that and what Daniel Adams is perpetuating and teaching. And by the way, let me just tell you, the video came from his own YouTube channel. So this is not me cutting and splicing as far as just taking um, bits and pieces out of an entire service. He shared these clips as I shared them. All I did was not share the TB Joshua portions. I'm going to share some T.B. Joshua things in just a minute because this type of practice that he did is extremely questionable. And it was continuously perpetuated in other examples, not to mention his false prophecy of 2016. Daniel Adams props tb joshua up as a man of god but there are highly questionable things that that he taught and that he did while he was alive and so when we see an article that's talking about that six in ten professing christians believe in one or more of the four new age beliefs ranging from 47 percent of evangelical protestants then it, it is concerning and again i'm going to express tremendous concern over the practice that we're evaluating today of what Daniel Adams modeled and what these people are being subjected to they're willingly being subjected to this and when you see these clips on YouTube you're going to notice this doesn't look like a what you would think a Christian worship service gathering is and it the clips he shared there was no ministering of the of the word of God no expositing of the word. There was no proper understanding. The gospel didn't seem to be presented. Now, if he did that, he didn't share those clips. The other troubling thing was that he emulated T.B. Joshua and replicated his own actions. T.B. Joshua passed away in 2021, as I said, and he was a pastor and a prophet uh, in Nigeria, and he prophesied that Hillary Clinton would narrowly win the 2016 election.
0: Message. i want to repeat if i have the grace to say the three i'll say it if it is one less, the immediate one is uh, the great nation okay we have uh, 10 days ago i was in the vision. they were telling me that at that 10 days ago it was man that will have won the election the lord said narrowly there's a state that you know it, Enormously, you know, 99% vote for this woman, and the woman, the woman,
1: Naro win. I apologize for the rough clip from that. It's really difficult to find good quali- good digital quality for this clip, but he, in case you couldn't understand him, he talked about that in 10 days prior to this prophecy that he is announcing to these people, that the Lord showed him and told him that the woman in the in America for during the election would have a narrow win. So he was talking about Hillary Clinton. And then when she didn't win, he went on later to basically say that people prayed. And because they prayed, they reversed the prophecy. We also need to understand that this practice of the chalkboard incident was not an isolated incident. I found a video where he was blessing water spigots as the water came out of them and was claiming to sanctify them. And the video title claimed that the blood of Jesus ran from these spigots as many people ran and approached them to gather the blessed water.
0: The man standing by these taps is T.B. Joshua during his early ministry of the Synagogue Church of All Nations. These are international visitors and members of the church who have come to watch the man of God sanctify the tap water. Prophet T.B. Joshua went to each tap of running water, placed his hand on them, and blessed the water. Here we can see him moving from one tap to another, drinking the water, which he has now sanctified, representing the blood of Jesus Christ. And international visitors rush forward with their containers to collect the blessed water, while others use their hands and mouth to collect it to drink.
1: I want you to notice This narrator says that the man of God sanctified the water and it symbolized the blood of Jesus. They even say, witness the captives getting free, the sick getting healed, and the paralyzed standing on their feet as they come into contact with this holy medium of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus. Does this sound like a biblical practice? Is the focus on Christ or is it on this man? This man that is claiming to sanctify He's claiming to sanctify this water and to turn it into the blood of Jesus. I mean, that's what they even put the thumbnail as. Water turns into blood. Watch ordinary water become blood in church. This is off the official Emmanuel TV YouTube channel. This is the fruit of where this chalkboard, whiteboard, dry erase board, anointing and writing on it. And mimicking what TB Joshua did, this is the fruit. This is coming from all of this. This is, again, not an isolated incident. This is perpetuated teaching. So that was disturbing. And there are people that, when you watch the video, that they were getting in the water, they were falling down, they were crossing their ankles, saying they were bound by Satan, that they were um, um, a slave of Satan, and that they needed deliverance. They were weeding out the people that were alleging to be in bondage to Satan and um, they were using this water to to bless others that were coming to collect it. Because, again, the focus was on TB Joshua blessing it. This is the warped mindset uh, that's going on here. This, the, the focus is not on Christ. It's focused on a fallible, sinful man that needs Christ. There's a difference in that. But the thing is, is that in this movement, they will teach that we have all this authority and we have all this power, while saying the name of Jesus, but it seems that God is treated in an, in a very irreverent way um, by, by some of these leaders. Now, there was also a video in January of 2021. This was several months before TB Joshua passed, where he was promoting the distribution of his anointing water and anointing sticker. Yes, anointing water and anointing sticker that came together. And he testified of alleged deliverances with people falling out, rolling in the floor, vomiting what they called poisonous substances when they labeled it on the screen, just from merely touching the box containing the water. They had these boxes with the stickers lined up on tables, and the people would come in. The partners would come in, and as they touched them or even got near the table, they would start manifesting what people In this movement, what we are familiar with that know that term manifesting, they would start shaking, falling in the floor, throwing up, screaming, all kinds of physical violent manifestations that would happen. One woman claimed to have been healed of blindness. And so I wanted to play a couple of these clips from that. And um, just so you can hear what TB Joshua had to say about this. And then on when I post this on my YouTube channel, I will have the clips of what happened to people. And so you can see what happened to them as they approached the table or they held on to them. What I found interesting, though, is that in this video, uh, there were those that, I guess, work for the ministry and that they were packaging the boxes and stickers up for shipping, and yet they didn't seem to have any of these manifestations. So let's listen to this for just a minute.
0: I want to talk to you about the new anointing water and the new anointing sticker. There was a manner, a wish, we receive the new anointing water and the new anointing sticker. Matters. I gave it to you freely for the salvation of your soul. Give it to others freely as you have received for the salvation of their soul.
1: I wanted to play that little bit because that in itself, it was it was as if he was attributing the anointing water the the anointed water and the anointed sticker to salvation. And that is extremely problematic. I hope that you understand that. I'm going to play a little bit more of this. And again, I'll play the clips where you can see how people reacted to it on my YouTube channel when I do post this later. But I want you to hear what they claim is going on. The narrator claims is going on when people receive the anointing water and the anointing sticker.
0: TV partners receive the new anointing water in centers around the world. Let us watch what happens when they merely touch the container without even opening the bottle of the new anointing water to minister it. Stay blessed.
1: And so they go on to play dramatic music and then they show people. Again, uh, approaching the, the tables and falling over and shaking and rolling around and throwing up and having all these manifestations. And they continue to show that. And then they show them shipping them off from to all these different countries. And they show partners in Paris, France and how they react to it. And anyway, it it was very, again, another disturbing part of, of seeing all this. And when I watch videos like this and the one with Daniel Adams, my heart goes out to those who attended these this meeting and think that this is of God. They think that this is of God. They think that this, because it's a real experience, they believe that, that what this is, is biblical. A lot of them, I would dare say, probably are not literate in Scripture that are having these things go on. They've just been having this perpetual teaching, you trust the man or woman of God, you don't question, You this is, the, this is the anointing, this is supernatural, and you're having a true experience so we don't need to test this or question this because we don't want to touch the prophets and do the prophets no harm. We don't want to touch the anointed of God. Our hearts can be deceived, our flesh can be manipulated, and our emotions can be heightened. And the experience is real, but the question is, is it biblical? And who is the focus here again? Is it Christ or is it TB Joshua? Is it Christ or is it Daniel Adams? I mean, Adams seemed to believe in his questions and statements that his written private prayer language on a whiteboard to translate a sentence that said you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the clips you heard, he said, "Now I'm going to write this in a private in my in a prayer language." He seemed to be implying when he asked the questions of people, that his written private prayer language to translate was equally anointed as the very word of God. That is alarming. I don't know if you caught that. Maybe you need to go back and listen to that. But when he said that, I thought, "Are you comparing your prayer language to the word of God? You're trying to say that you just translated it into a pra- into a prayer language that no one can verify. You're saying that this is because you did some chicken scratch up on the on a board that that this is a, a language." This is why we're going to talk about the history today. So when he's making these claims, that is very concerning. And TB Joshua said that unrighteousness went out and righteousness came in, as I said a minute ago, and the man who came to the board spoke in tongues. This is what he's when he said righteousness went in, he spoke in tongues. So was he that powerful? Was TB Joshua that powerful? Was he that powerful to anoint spigots and sanctify them, water spigots, and, and and to claim that they're the blood of Jesus? Or are these people being given over to strong delusions by God? That, those are the things I consider. And some people will go into the passage in Acts chapter 19, when Paul had the handkerchiefs. This, to my knowledge, this is the only account that we see in, in the New Testament where this even happened. Aside from um, Peter's shadow that we see earlier on in Acts, I think in Acts 5. But in Acts 19, verse 11, we see that prior to this, that Paul had traveled to Ephesus. He had ministered to the disciples of John, by the way. And they had been baptized into Christ and then Paul laid his hands on them and that the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. We'll we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But when we go to verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And so when we look at this, I I hope that we can agree on this, is that this is a descriptive passage. This is not prescriptive. This is not telling us that, that we're supposed to do this. And it's highlighting the fact that Paul was called as an apostle of Christ, to minister to the Gentiles, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He was an apostle of Christ. The apostles of Christ were given the authority from Christ to do certain things and to operate um, into doing miracles, signs, and wonders, and this authenticated their ministry. It showed that they truly did come from Christ. So this is not a prescriptive passage. This is descriptive we're never instructed in all of the epistles to conduct ourselves in such ways as Christians. This looks more pagan behavior. And I use that term a lot. But when I look at how even in the past, how I used to conduct myself in certain ways and things that real experiences that I had, they identify with more with pagan behavior than they do with the conduct of a, of a believer in Christ. There are no other instances in scripture of us seeing this type of practice. We do not create extra-biblical practices based on personal experience or on one Bible verse describing an account rather than instructing the church in their conduct. This is not a, a normal practice that we would we want to Um, institute we don't want to tell people well this is what you need to do you just we're going to anoint this and then you just put it in your pillowcase you put it somewhere and it has the anointing on it and we're just going to believe that God's going to move how about ministering the gospel to people how about teaching them what the word of God says how about sharing the truth with them in love how about proper biblical discipleship how about doing that instead of doing these practices that are more akin to new age occult practices and are really blurring the lines to where that it it doesn't, it does not look like biblical Christianity and people are not growing in proper biblical sanctification. And some of these people, sadly and, and frighteningly, may not have ever even heard the gospel. That's terrifying to even think about that, that these people are sitting in services thinking they're saved and they've never even, probably never even heard the gospel and don't have a proper understanding, and they need to. We all need to. So now having talked about all this, I want to touch on another topic in relation to this, and it has to do with Parham, Charles Fox Parham, and the view of tongues. And some of you may be aware of this history, and some of you may not be. I was not fully aware of this history until the past year and a half, two years, because there were things that were told to us, you know, if you ever read God's Generals, that was one of the books that was used as like a textbook for one of the, again, classes I took in, quote, Bible college. The first one, the blue covered one, with Smith Wigglesworth, John G. Lake, Charles Fox Parham, uh, Amy Simple McPherson, Mariah Woodworth-Eder, Catherine Kuhlman, uh, Alexander Dowie, all of those guys in there, William Branham goodness gracious, that'd be another good one to talk about. But there's lots of other people that have covered that topic way better than I could. But I wanted to talk about this for Parham and also too, to tell you Daniel Long has some videos that talk more in depth about the history of tongues because it goes beyond Parham. It goes into the Shakers, the Irvingites. So I would encourage you to check those out because I think they'll, they'll, they'll be of help to you. And sometimes we tend to avoid things that... <laughs> we don't want to talk about things such as tongues because it's such a sacred thing for some for some that we don't want that touched. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about it. Some people highly value the private prayer language and to even consider that it may not even be a biblical practice and that that the 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 history of it is questionable at best then that really, it it's it can be controversial to people and a hot topic for people. But I encourage you to look into it. This was one of the things that was um, eye-opening for me when I began to study Scripture, to look at it, to listen to exposition on this, to read about this, to learn the history about it. And the more that I did, the more things began to unravel. And I also began to understand what it truly meant to be Spirit-filled. Um, for those that will relate to this too, a lot of times, some of us have heard this; these things said is when you're in this type of movement that those who are spirit filled are the ones that speak in tongues and they operate miracles, signs and wonders. They cast out demons and they do all of these things. And those people that don't do that, they're dead. They're in dead churches. They're in dry churches. They're religious. They're Pharisees. They're hypocritical. They they reject the Holy. They blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They reject the Holy Spirit. So you know they don't have anything to do with God. Or maybe they'll say, well, you know, we're thankful for this certain denomination or that one because they do get people saved or they do this or that, but they just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. What an absolute lie. It's an absolute lie. And I would encourage you to actually do some Bible study on what it means to be Spirit-filled and what that looks like in the life of a believer. So I want to focus on what Parham believed and taught so that you will be aware of some of the history of this. And as I said, many may not be familiar with it, as it may have been whitewashed or conveniently left out. You know, some things will be said to say, well, this person wasn't perfect. They had these sins in their lives and such. But then the matter of this is not even mentioned in God's Generals, for example, about Charles Fox Parham and what happened with the speaking in tongues and what he actually believed. Now, one of the references I found that I read through was actually an an academia article. And this was, and this talked about Charles Fox Parham and his views of speaking in tongues. So I wanted to read some of the summary and some of the things in this academia article for you. And I'll post the link to it so you can read it for yourself if you choose to do so. But I want to share some of these things with you so you have a better understanding about What Parham believed, who is who is identified as the father of Pentecostalism, by the way, he was the one that started the Bethel Bible School in 1900. And he um, it was in Topeka, Kansas. And the goal he had of this school was to train holiness missionaries. And Parham believed if his students recovered the tongues gift, that they could go to nations with the gospel without the need for formal training. So there are newspaper clips and articles I'm going to read to you in just a little bit and share that he believed his initial belief in tongues was that they were known languages in the earth that were unknown to speakers and that he believed that these missionaries he trained in his Bible college would actually supernaturally learn these languages without formal training and be able to go in all the world and minister the gospel. In January 1st of 1901, Agnes Osman, who was one of his students, she asked... Uh, Parham to lay hands on her and to pray for her. Well, she began to speak in an ecstatic utterance that she claimed to speak in Chinese. She claimed to write in Chinese as well. Um, And she wrote it on a scrap of paper, which it was published in a newspaper. Later, some linguists noted that this was unintelligible writing that was claimed to be Chinese. And so it was published in a newspaper a few days later. And then after this, Parham and about 30 other students also claimed to speak in foreign languages And so I'll read some of those, again, those newspaper clippings in a minute. But let's go back to this academia article and just hear some of the things that Parham believed, the father of Pentecostalism. For Parham, speaking in tongues was privately a way of prayer and praise to God and conversation with God, publicly, the invariably accompanied, inseparable, outer, definite, and only Bible evidence of the inner baptism of the Holy Spirit. A sign of believer and to unbeliever, speaking unknown languages of the the world by the Spirit, so a medium of message from God for foreign mission and preaching, and a method for praise to and judgment by God. However, Parham did not adhere only to xenoglossolalia which is the the speaking of n- known languages in the earth that that would be naturally unknown to you. Writing that the initial gift of tongues may develop into a real gift of language, he acknowledged so-called glossolalia to some extent, which is speaking in ecstatic utterance or gibberish, basically. The article went on to say his understanding of tongues as a private prayer was noted in a book written by Parham in 1911, The Everlasting Gospel. They say, quote, In the preface of the second edition of A Crying in the Wilderness, Parham looked back That after the publication of the first edition eight years ago, the apostolic faith movement had been spread all over the world. And until that time, the whole world had accepted the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the accompanying evidence of speaking in other tongues, the gifts of healing and driving out demons in the name of Jesus, etc. And this was published again in 1902. The word evidence, this um, author noted in this academia article, the word evidence does not appear in the Bible. In other words, it is not a biblical usage, but an extra-biblical theological usage which Parham used creatively. The, um, The author of this paper went on to say, "...the only evidential tongues of the Spirit of Baptism, Parham asserted that speaking in tongues was the only Bible evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he saw that modern speaking in tongues was the same evidence as the evidence of the Apostolic Age. For him, Jesus, who promised the sealing of the Spirit, had given them the same evidence as that of the Apostolic Age, namely speaking with tongues." Parham believed speaking in tongues had both an inner and outer aspect, interchange, outward manifestation, which the author of this article noted that there was influence from John Wesley that was noted. Um, from the holiness movement in Parham's beliefs. The author said for him, full gospel was attended with signs and wonders, diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, knowledge, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, tongues, discerning of spirits, prophecy and interpretation of tongues. And we're going to discuss this full gospel belief next week. I have some clips that popped up in my YouTube feed that were, worth talking about. Let me just put it that way. So we're going to talk about this belief of the full gospel being you must have signs and wonders and you must believe in speaking in tongues and casting out demons and if you don't then you don't then you're an apostate church. Um, Actually a recent apostle slash prophet just said that. So I'm going to be talking about that next week and some some areas with that and, and we'll we'll cover that. Parham believed in the signed tongues for believers. For him if someone speaks in tongues other people may know that one is a believer. For Parham speaking in tongues was the outer confirmation of inner spiritual benefit. According to him, the world can know someone is a Christian who is receiving spiritual benefit or not through the sign. New tongues, an outer visible sign, confirms the word of inward spiritual benefit wrought in Jesus Christ. It agrees with his understanding speaking in tongues as the outer evidence of the spirit baptism. The author went on to say according to Parham, modern Pentecost is given not only as the sign of a believer, but also as the sign to unbelievers, and is the power to witness not only in one's own language, but also in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. The proclamation of tongues was another area that Parham believed in, according to this this author, at first, uh, Parham believed in the language of uh, tongues. He thought that all tongues as languages of the world, or so-called xenoglossolalia. He said that on the day of Pentecost, the disciples spoke various different languages, and Jews who gathered together from various nations heard that the disciples spoke the great things of God through their native languages. And if you'll take note in Acts 2, when you read that, there's six, at least 16 different nations that are highlighted in uh, hearing the proclamation of the 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 works of God, and then hearing the gospel. Parham regarded the tongues of Agnes Osman as Chinese, which confirmed the biblical study on spirit baptism of Bethel Bible School. He recollected that time and, and wrote, she began speaking in the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English to tell us of her experience, she wrote the Chinese. And he also recollected tongues which he received with spirit baptism were the language of the world too. When he prayed for spirit baptism accompanying tongues, his tongue was twisted, and he began to worship God through Swedish, and he had spoken in tongues through various languages till the next morning. After that time, he used to speak frequently the Yiddish language, which all Jews in Central Asia could understand. And as, as far as his belief about unlanguage tongues, um, afterward Parm admitted unlanguage tongues, so-called glossolalia, as well as language tongues. He sorted tongues into two kinds: the initial gift of tongues and a real gift of language. And insisted the former should be developed into the latter. The speaking in tongues, as the witness to Pentecost, was named the initial gift of tongues by him. Such naming was his admitting. That when anyone spoke in tongues at first time, in most cases spoke xenoglossolalia as Parham's own experience, but there could be ambiguous utterances, glossolalia also. He believed the repetition of sounds should progress into a real language for use. He also believed in various forms of tongues such as preaching, message, public praise, interpreting, writing, and missionary. He also believed that those who rejected speaking in tongues and were witnessing the gift of tongues as a sign of judgment on them for rejecting it. Now, I wanted to go on to this article I found on Cripplegate and this and there were several articles about this that I've read through that talked about our tongues real languages, and Nathan Busnitz talks about the the history of with param and with tongues, and he references some of the newspaper clippings, newspaper articles. So Buesnitz says in his article here on Our Tongues, Real Languages on Cripplegate, he says the church fathers equated the tongues of Acts 2 with the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So he shares some of the quotes there from some of the early church fathers that um, appear to agree with the fact that they believed that the tongues in Acts 2 were the same as the tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And he says insisting that in both places the gift consisted of the ability to speak genuine languages. He said the reformers similarly regarded the gift of tongues as a supernatural ability to speak real foreign languages. As stated before, Parham indeed believed that tongues were known human languages supernaturally given, as noted in Acts 2. So Parham, what you may not realize is Parham's original belief was that tongues were as what we should note in Acts 2. Now, some of us were taught that Acts 2 was a private prayer language. That's not what the scripture says. When you read it in context, this were, these were known languages that were unknown to the speakers, and they were supernaturally given for the ministering of the gospel. They, to, the tongues were signs to unbelievers, and so when we continue to to look through that, we can use Acts two in order to understand First Corinthians twelve through fourteen. Another important thing to understand, some have speculated that Parham's view of tongues changed when Azusa happened because of William Seymour. And there were things that were going on at Azusa that Parham did not agree with. Um, I believe that there was a, a quote that said that they were barking like dogs and crowing like roosters. So there were different things going on at Azusa that Parham did not agree with, that he felt was out of order, and some have speculated, including the author of that academic paper, that his view of tongues began to change then. As you'll get to hear in just a minute, regardless, there are some issues with his view of tongues So one of the uh, newspaper articles in uh, January 7th of 1901, um, Charles Parham was cited in the Topeka State Journal. He said, quote, The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools. In uh, January, On January 27th of 1901, Charles Parham was cited in the Kansas City Times as saying, quote, A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. On May 31st of 1901, um, Charles Parham was cited in the Hawaiian Gazette as saying, quote, There is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing that they will be thus made be able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language, which will, of course, be an inestimable Advantage. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have them conferred on them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt various dialects of the people of India and even the language of the language of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I expect this gathering to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost." And also, too, um, in the clips with Daniel Adams and T.B. Joshua, there was an area where he said this is exactly what happened at Pentecost. Uh, T.B. Joshua says that. And again, I would disagree because Acts 2 clearly states it was languages. And that's what um, xenoglossolalia is. That's what tongues, the word tongues mean. It's talking about languages and languages had to be interpreted. And even some other continuationists, by the way, D.A. Carson, for example, does not agree. Uh, Wayne Grudem does not agree with what some people today believe as tongues. They note the, the issues, the discrepancies there. So something else to consider. So what happened when these missionaries went out? Because over the next 10 years after leaving Bethel Bible College, these missionaries went out over the next decade, to different countries. So the question is, did what Parham claimed transpire? Were they able to supernaturally speak in these languages that they they said that they were receiving? This article was noted and it was uh, found in... Uh, In a book called The Vision of the Disinherited, the author said, quote, S.C. Todd of the Bible Missionary Society investigated 18 Pentecostals who went to Japan, China, and India, expecting to preach to the natives in those countries in their own tongue, and found that by their own admission, in no single instance have they been able to do so. As these and other missionaries returned in disappointment and failure, Pentecostals were compelled to rethink their original view of speaking in tongues. So this seemed to create a dilemma. Um, Some have speculated that at this point, this is when Parham began to change his view of tongues. And I kind of wonder that myself because of the the books that were written. The Everlasting Gospel was published and written in 1911, and he's talking about these different views of tongues. This all happened, and, and Azusa happened in 1906. So we see all this going on, and the question is, you know, this is the father of Pentecostalism. The roots of uh, Azusa Street are traced back to him. So the question is, is this all reputable? Because there are other things, too, that went on. There's a lot of other things that we could talk about unrelated to the tongues issue that were problematic with some of these leaders in in this movement. And so this leads to some questionable activity, and this leads to questions as far as this legitimate and you also have to consider too that there are other religions that claim to speak in ecstatic utterances, to have prayer languages and, and such and operate in the same way. And then the question should be asked, would the Holy Spirit mimic something that false religions are doing? Would he do that? And some people will say, Well, you know, this is they're they're operating in a counterfeit and we need to take back what belongs to God. But it also all comes back to the root question, is this really what took place? Because Parham didn't even believe in the private prayer language to begin with. He believed that they were known languages. And so we have to consider these things when we're talking about it and be willing to look at this. Now, the other thing I wanted to point you to is um, a source that I that Hen actually talked about in an interview that he did, and I ended up getting my hands on it. It's an old book, and it's called Tongues to Speak or Not to Speak, a Contemporary Analysis of Glossolalia. And I wanted to read um, out of this book Um, a little bit uh, regarding Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19, because those are the three accounts in the Acts of the Apostles where we see tongues are evident. And this author that wrote this, his name is Donald Burdick, he wrote about this particular area, and so I, um, in this book, and so I wanted to share this to give some food for thought about it. He said in the Old Testament passage quoted by Paul, the foreign language of the Assyrians was to serve as a judgmental sign to the Israelites, a proof that God was chastening His people through oppression by their enemies, and that's referring to First Corinthians fourteen twenty one through twenty two which Paul wrote a reference to Isaiah twenty-eight eleven and 12 in there. So I would encourage you to do some Bible studying on that in your own time. He says, It is not however necessary that we understand that Paul means that New Testament tongues are judgmental in their purpose. What the Apostle does say is that tongues in the New Testament, just as in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, are assigned to unbelievers. A study of the occurrences of glossolalia in Acts reveals that tongues were employed as evidence of several different facts. In Acts 2, the purpose was clearly to convince the unsaved. Unbelieving Jews were attracted, and the claims of the gospel were confirmed to them by the miracle of glossolalia. In this case, the tongues preceded the response of repentance and faith. In Acts 10, however, the situation is somewhat different. Here, the tongues follow Peter's message. On this occasion, the sign seems to be acting in reverse, for it is not the believers who speak in tongues and convince the unbelievers, it is those who had been unbelievers who speak in tongues and convince the believers. Furthermore, tongues here seem to follow belief rather than precede it. Apparently, the people in Cornelius' house responded to Peter's message in their hearts, and then they spoke in tongues. It was therefore not possible for tongues to serve as evidence to these Gentile unbelievers leading to their conversion. Instead, tongues functioned as evidence to Peter and his Jewish companions that God was performing the unexpected. He was saving uncircumcised Gentiles through faith alone. It was the irrefutable logic of glossolalia which convinced Peter that these new believers should be baptized, and it was the same convincing argument that silenced the critical Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Tongues in Acts 10 then were evidential, but not intended to convince the unsaved as in Acts 2. They were evidence for unbelieving Jewish Christians who did not believe that God's redemptive program included uncircumcised Gentiles. And I would also point to the fact that in Acts 11, when Peter is explaining what happened in the house of Cornelius, take note that he tells... The council in Jerusalem, that the Holy Spirit fell just as he did on us at the first day, on the day of Pentecost. So this would mean that it was the exact same way, meaning that these were known languages unknown to the speaker, but they were declaring them supernaturally from God. Again in Acts nineteen, one through seven, the author goes on to say, the situation is still different. In this case, disciples of John the Baptist spoke in tongues. They had received John's message of the coming Messiah, and had been baptized with John's baptism of repentance. When Paul explained Christian baptism, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This indicates clearly that they had believed and were saved. However, it was not until Paul laid his hands on them that these believers spoke with tongues and prophesied. It is plain that tongues on this occasion did not function as a sign leading to the conversion of these persons as in Acts 2. Furthermore, the tongues did not serve to convince Paul of any fact that he had not yet been willing to receive, as in the case of Peter in Acts 10. It remains that glossolalia in Acts 19 must have been evidence offered to John's disciples demonstrating the reality of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their lives. Previous to this occasion, they not only had not received the Spirit, but they had not even been aware of His indwelling ministry. I thought that was interesting, and I wanted to share that to offer some, some food for thought or some consideration regarding that. Because, in essence, what happened was that those who believed in Christ were witnesses and they fulfilled Acts 1, 5, and 8 when they did this, that they were witnesses to different areas, to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world, which in their time, the outermost parts would have been Rome. So when the the gospel went to the uh, Gentiles, then that was showing that this was being fulfilled and that, that tongues with interpretation equal prophecy. Let's also take note of that. So when we take these things into consideration, and we also have to consider, too, when you see these examples in the Acts of the Apostles, you're also going to note the presence of apostles when this occurred. So that's also a significant thing. So the question could be today, do you, since people believe in modern-day apostles, and the the whole question stems back to the what type of apostles are you talking about, which a lot of these people believe they are governing authorities, that you have to be submitted to an apostle in order to have a ministry that's, that's valid and it's going to be um, powerful for God. When you have these apostles today, do you have to have these apostles to present in order for people to speak in tongues? Because that would fit the model that would they not want to follow the model of the Bible? So these are things that questions that are fair to ask and to consider. So I would encourage you to read these accounts and Acts as well as 1 Corinthians 14 as a whole and to do um, personal Bible study on that. If this is a, an area of contention for you, then I encourage you to look into this. And to to do a Bible study on this, look at what it means to be filled when you look in Acts versus the word "filled" in Ephesians five eighteen. And I've talked about this in another podcast before as well about being spirit filled without speaking in tongues. And remember that clear passages interpret unclear passages. When you listen to um, Bible teachers, um, pastors, Bible scholars, they're going to one of the things they will tell you when you're looking at um, Bible study and understanding passages better, is that if you have an unclear passage, then it is governed by clear passages of Scripture. Acts 2 is a clear passage, and it helps us to understand 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. And it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to look into these things and to make sure that you're having a proper understanding of what's going on in the passage and not going on just what someone is telling you about personal experience we want to stick close to, st- to scripture that is the standard that we rest upon for truth and I understand that this can be a sensitive topic again a hot topic for people controversial it can it can really get people from zero to 60 real fast and, and upset when you talk about this but I would also encourage you that claiming a private prayer language does not mark you as a believer or a spirit filled there are not two classes of believers. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, and we are progressively sanctified by the Holy Spirit to walk in spiritual maturity. And so I wanted to present these things to you today, both to to talk a little bit about the very much concerning practice of claiming to write a private prayer language on a chalkboard or whiteboard and to say well this is anointed and you can touch it and you'll have this supernatural manifestation and then you'll shake and fall over and and demons will come out and that you'll speak in tongues which is not modeled in scripture whatsoever and and how much this is unbiblical practice and even bordering on new age when you talk about spiritual energy in a um, in an object such as crystals and other things like that the flip side of it, too, is the whole um, controversy or the, and the belief of the private prayer language and where some of that history came from that you may or may not be aware of. And again, do some study on this. Do some research on this. Make sure that you're not just listening to one side, but you're listening to both sides and that you're ultimately coming back to what Scripture has to say on the matter. And so I hope you find this helpful. If you want to reach out to me, you can feel free to message me at dawn at com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving a five-star review. And I look forward to being with you on here next week as we discuss other topics until that time comes. My friend be blessed today by the truth of God's word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the word and loving the one who is the word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.